On August 30th, 1945, General MacArthur arrived in Tokyo and he began the Allied occupation of Japan following Japan's surrender to end World War II. The surrender ceremony itself took place on board the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 1945. Now, the general's role, uh, that is, um, General MacArthur, his role was to serve as a representative for those who were calling for peace. It was peace, of course, that was a result of a military victory. The United States, the Allied Nations, uh, the military forces of the U.S. and the Allied Nations, everyone on that day wanted peace. Peace. What is, what is peace? Well, at the end of World War II, peace was the ending of hostilities, or at least the official ending of hostilities. General MacArthur and others stood on board the USS Missouri and watched as the representatives of Japan signed the documents and finally at a cost, frankly, that is unimaginable, peace. While the surrender of Japan, and of course that followed the surrender of Germany that ended World War II, was important for world peace. We might suggest it was one of the most important events in the last several centuries. That peace, and once you think about this, that peace was not personal. We discover that even an important event like the ending of World War II can be extraordinarily impersonal. Now, keep in mind, the war, World War II, affected everyone. It affected everybody, and yet not everybody was invited to be on board the USS Missouri. Of course, we wouldn't have all fit. And General MacArthur stood there as sort of the representative of all those who ought to have been there, which is everybody. But, you know, even though he was there as a representative of the United States, the military of the United States, and the Allied forces, you couldn't just call up General MacArthur and ask him to lunch. I mean, first of all, he wouldn't know you. And frankly, even if he did know you, he'd turn you down. The guy had much more important matters to tend to than going out to lunch. And keeping in mind the millions of people who suffered deep losses as a result of that conflict, the peace that marked the end of the war, of course, was extraordinarily important, if, especially for those folks. But does that really bring the peace that a person wants who has experienced such deep personal loss? A guy signing a piece of paper on a boat? This is why the few, first few words of Ephesians 2.14 might seem a little bit strange to us when we think about it. Ephesians 2.14 starts this way. For he, that is Jesus, is our peace. For Jesus is our peace. So Jesus is bringing the most important peace that has ever been offered, and his peace, in contrast to other forms of peace, is by definition personal. Jesus says, I am your peace, and His peace, in fact, is by definition personal. And I would even suggest this, His peace only matters because it is personal. Well, why do we need to think about this? You may be wondering that, asking yourself that question, but let me try and explain it. I think we tend to try and keep peace that we have with God through Christ impersonal. I think it's our normal tendency. We, we don't mean to, it's just our natural way. 
Think about it this way. A general on a ship overseeing a ceremony to bring peace on the other side of the world. That's pretty important, isn't it? We agree that was an important event. If we don't agree that's important, I don't know where we're going to go with this. That's a pretty big deal. It was important for most of the world. It was, in fact, life-changing. But in a real sense, it's happening way over there. And really, my job, knowing some guy is on a boat signing papers, really my job in, in the here and now is to get on with living my life. That's, that's the whole point. Well, it's the same way with Jesus oftentimes in our minds. Jesus dies on a cross on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. It's important. It's life-changing, but honestly, that was a long time ago. And it was way over there. And I think maybe my job then, okay, he died on the cross, great, that's awesome. Maybe my job at that point is really just to get on with living my life. Just do my best I can to kind of keep that kind of thing in mind. Help that inform me as I navigate through my life. See, we, we, we look at the two things nearly identically. So we need to understand this principle, and here's the principle I want to try and convince you is important. We experience peace based on the nature of that peace. And let me explain it. The nature of a military surrender is formal and it is impersonal, but it has personal implications on my life. The war is over and life can continue on with some sense of peace as long as peace is maintained. So when we believe that Christ offers us this same kind of peace, a military surrender, or the, merely just the ending of hostilities, what we do is we experience peace with Christ the same way we experience the end of World War II. It's simply a formal theological reality that somehow in a very somewhat impersonal and theological way, we have peace with God. And so therefore, it ought to have some sort of effect on my life. Hostilities are over, so maybe I can feel less guilty, or I can look forward to going to heaven, or I can be a part of a group of people who have similar views on life in the world and God. But here's the thing that we need to see in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18 this morning. The peace of Jesus should not be experienced in this way. Because the very nature of the peace that Jesus has given us is intensely personal. We really need the Bible here to, to reform our thoughts and how we think about the peace that Christ offers as we read through this this morning. If we don't, I think we run the risk of missing out on the very essence of what it means to know Christ and what it means to know God through Christ. If we don't let the Bible shape our thinking on the peace of Jesus, frankly, our relationship with Jesus will be no deeper than our relationship with General MacArthur. He's just some guy that brought peace. That's not what Christ wants, and it's certainly not what the Bible teaches. We don't want to see Jesus from a distance and understand His importance and have nothing more than that. All right, so keep your Bible open. You have your Bible open still to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin in Ephesians 2.14 and take a look at this. The peace of Jesus. 
And the first thing we want to think about is the peace of Jesus is the unity of Jesus. The peace, <clears throat> excuse me, of Jesus is the unity of Jesus. Let me read just verse 14 once again real quick. For he, and that he there is Jesus, for Jesus himself is our peace, who made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so what the author here is talking about is some hostility existed through, between people. There were two groups of people he's talking about here from a previous portion of the passage, Jews and Gentiles. Now, Jews, very easy to understand who Jews are. Jews are people who are Jewish. Gentiles, again, very easy to understand, people who aren't Jewish. And these groups of people, when living together in the same setting, often conflicted. And what we discover is those conflicts didn't go away when Jews and Gentiles became Christians. You had Jewish folks becoming Christians, and you had Gentile folks becoming Christians, and they were all coming together as a body of believers, and they were still fighting. And the author of the apostle here is saying, for Christ himself is our peace, and he has broken down the hostility that exists between individuals. So the peace of Jesus is the unity of Jesus, not merely between us and Christ, but between us and one another. Now notice how it's phrased here again in verse 14. He is our peace. It's not saying here, and it's a very strange way of wording it, he is not saying Jesus brings peace. Did you notice that? It says Jesus is our peace. His very existence, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, breaks down any division that might exist between individuals. What is it that brings hostility between people? Well, a couple of things, just one or two things, or a million Hostility between Jew and Gentile were primarily framed in this way. The Jews would look at the Gentiles and basically say, you're not good enough. Maybe you have Jesus, but you're not very religious. Maybe you have Jesus, but you sure don't know how to get your act together. And frankly, I don't want to remind you, but Jesus was in fact Jewish, so he's going to slant to us Jews. Now, the Gentiles on the other side are going to be arguing with the Jews, saying, listen, you're too high in yourself. You're too exclusive. You think too much of yourself. You need to get off your high horse. So the Jews and Gentiles would have conflict with each other because even though they might both be in Christ, they looked at each other with conflict. They didn't like what they saw in the other person. The Jews didn't like the lack of good, decent religion in the life of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles didn't like the fact that the Jews would hold it over the head that they weren't religious enough. Let's go back to the beginning of sin, Genesis chapter 3, and look at how this might be playing out. Adam and Eve were created by God. They were placed in the Garden of Eden. God had created everything. This is Genesis 3. I'm going to begin in verse 8. And God tells Adam and Eve, innocent and perfect, He says to them, you may eat of anything you want. Just do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden. The serpent deceives Eve, and she eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then she takes and she gives it to Adam, and he also eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they immediately feel guilt, and they feel shame over their sin. They promptly realize that they are naked, and so they cover themselves, and then they hide. Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And then the man and his wife, excuse me, his wife, pardon me, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God called out to the man. He said to him, where are you? The man said, I heard you in the sound, I heard you in the sound of you, I should say, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This game of hide and seek is not going well for Adam. He's losing badly. Here's what we discover about sin very early on. We are, in fact, sinners by nature. We disobey God, but we inherited that from Adam. Once he sinned, everyone who was born after him inherited the nature as sinner. So by nature, we are sinners and have hostility now towards God. That shame and guilt, all of a sudden, we have something between us and God. Before the sin happened, there was no need for Adam to hide and now, by nature, we, also, we have hostility between us and God because of our disobedience. But there's also something else that happens moments after we experience that hostility between us and God. Not only do we sin against God, we also experience what it feels like to have others who are hostile to God sin against us. Who told you you were naked? Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave me. Adam has been a sinner five minutes, and he has figured out how to blame someone else. Now, all of a sudden, Adam's sin is getting complicated. Now, he doesn't just have a problem with God. He's got a problem with every human on planet Earth. There's only two. He has now ostracized the entire planet, and that's how it's going to go for the rest of time. See, sin doesn't just exist in this formal theological, God has to be perfect, and so I need to have some kind of atoning work done. It does exist in that plane. But, that, but sin is not so simplistic. Sin in us uh, explodes all around us all the time, and it just wrecks everything. And Adam, we see that immediately. Adam doesn't in that moment say, you know what, God, I, I blew it. I don't know what to do. I mean, the first thing he does is uh, it's her fault. It's the first thing he does. By nature, we will maintain and exist in hostility between us and God. And because of that, we are going to live in hostility with one another because of our nature. But the peace of Jesus is the unity of Jesus, not just horizontally with Christ, but also vertically with those around us. And that's what, what Paul is saying is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He's saying he has broken down in his flesh the hostility that exists. The walls that exist between individuals must come down. I would say it this way. Jesus' peace is defined by unity of prior adversaries. Let me say that again. Jesus' peace in the life of a believer or Jesus' peace in the life of a church is defined by unity existing between prior adversaries. It's when Jew and Gentile sit at the table and have dinner together. It's when two people who prior to Christ were at each other's throats now find unity in Christ because of the work of Christ. 
The walls must come down because the peace of Jesus is the unity of Jesus. The peace of Jesus is, in fact, extraordinarily personal in our relationships with one another. Jesus, in fact, said it. Look at Matthew verse 18. Matthew 18 verse 21, I should say. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? John. Everybody knew he was talking about John. Mr. Favorite. <laughs> how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many times as seven times, God? How amazing am I? Seven times. That's what he was doing. Seven. Nobody would ever say seven times. Peter was really going for it, swinging for the fences. Seven times, Lord. Amazing. And Jesus goes, I would not say seven times, but I would say forever. Seventy times, seven times. Now, see, all of a sudden, Peter's thinking things through. Now, wait a second. You're seeing forgiveness different than me. And so Jesus tells a parable to explain why he sees forgiveness different. And Peter, uh, Jesus says this, tells uh, Peter this parable. There was a servant, and he owed a billion dollars to a king. He couldn't pay it. He begged for the king's forgiveness. And the king just wiped out the billion-dollar debt. Just wiped it. He said, forget it. You don't owe a penny. Go. This servant who has been forgiven a billion dollars goes out, and he runs into his fellow servant who owes him a $5 gift certificate to McDonald's. And he strangles him. And he throws his family in prison. And then throws him in prison and says, you will not get out of prison until you reimburse me for the $5 gift certificate at McDonald's you spent. And the king, when he hears of it, finds the servant and says, I can't, what are you talking about? I forgave you a billion dollars. And this is what Jesus is telling to Peter. You're asking if you should forgive seven times? I've forgiven you a billion times, Peter. Receive from me the fullness of my forgiveness and have it reprogram how you, how you forgive others. Jesus wants the body of believers to have a culture of forgiveness and grace. Forgiveness and grace not merely as acts where, okay, we should forgive every now and then. Somebody does something bad, we should forgive. A culture where we wake up in the morning and say, who can I forgive today? Man, there's got to be somebody I can extend unconditional grace to today. Forgiveness and grace not merely as deeds, not merely as acts, but as the oil that provides the, the, the fluid motion of the body of believers. Forgiveness and grace that defines the way in which people interact with one another because that is how Christ has chosen to interact with us. There's no other way for the hostility to come down. There is no other way for the dividing walls to fall unless forgiveness and grace are the culture of a body of believers. Where there is not one person that we would look at and say, you know, they just, they've gone too far. Where we would offer forgiveness and grace, and not merely as an act or a deed, but as a condition of our hearts to relate with one another. The peace of Jesus is the unity of Jesus. And it's extremely personal because this affects every single one of us in the body of believers. Keep moving on to the next couple of verses. The peace of Jesus, though, goes beyond thawing of the interpersonal ice and seeks warmth. Look at verse 15 and 16 this morning with me. The peace of Jesus is the friendliness of Jesus. 
So we might say uh, the peace of Jesus, the unity of Jesus, and the only way to get there is by offering forgiveness and grace to everyone. We say, you know what? Forgiven, grace, don't worry about it, but please never talk to me again. Listen, I've offered you forgiveness and grace. I promise not to kill you. But you and I cannot talk. And Jesus is going to challenge that notion here. He say, the peace of Jesus isn't merely unity where on formal terms, okay, I forgive you, it's fine, don't worry about it. The peace of Jesus is, in fact, the friendliness of Jesus. Let me read verse 15 and 16 again. Jesus, uh, excuse me, he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the goal here is that God wants to reconcile himself to himself a people, one people. Not Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, not white Christians and uh, Hispanic Christians, Latino Christians, black Christians. He wants to reconcile to himself one body that find themselves in Christ where the hostility has been destroyed between the dividing lines that tend to exist. And he says this, I want to reconcile to God, that is vertically, one body. Look at verse 16. Reconcile us both to God in one body. That one body there, he's no longer talking about the body of Christ on the cross. He's talking about the church. He does not merely want to present to to God the church. He wants to present to God the church where all hostilities have gone away. He wants to present us to God no longer hostile with one another. And not merely not killing each other, but where we have the warmth and friendliness of Christ toward one another. Let's look again at Genesis to see what sin can do in the relationships we experience. Adam and Eve had children. Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1, Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived, and they bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground, and in the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought also uh, of the firstborn of his flock from the fat portions, and the Lord, though, had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Cain was very angry. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why, Why is your face falling? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Why not do well? But be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. So then Cain made an appointment with Abel. Now, obviously, he saw that Abel understood how to relate with God in a little better way, and so he wanted to have a meeting with Abel to understand how he could grow as a follower of God. So Cain killed him. And you thought arguing about worship in church started recently. People have been fighting about worship since the time that there were four people on planet Earth. How many people does it take to fight over worship? Four, if you're wondering. Cain and Abel's 
a hostility towards one another. What's interesting here, the hostility that Cain and Abel had towards one another was actually over the way and manner that they relate to God. They were arguing over about how they know God. Cain didn't like how Abel was doing it, and he certainly didn't like God's response to it. And this fostered in him great rage. And so they've been fighting over worship ever since. So what's the great fix to no longer as a body of Christ fighting over how we worship and understand the Lord? Here's the best fix, right? I've got it. We've figured it out. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Make sure that there are plenty of rules to ensure everybody knows what's right and wrong. See how that worked out. Exodus 18, verse 16. Moses Well, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. So they come up with a very detailed way in which you relate to God and Moses nearly burned himself out saying this, at that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord has multiplied you and you are numerous. So Moses is basically saying, Now they have the law introduced. Everybody understands the rules. Moses has a full-time job. is helping people understand the rules, and there's constant disputes going on. That didn't fix it, did it? The hostility is, is still there. Verse 15 of Ephesians 2, Christ abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Christ is on the cross. All disputes are gone. Christ on the cross. All come to God through Christ on the cross. Two guys standing at the foot of the cross. One guy says to the other guy, how are you going to get to God? guy on the cross. You know, you don't seem fairly religious. Really? Look at him on the cross. Of course I'm not. Isn't it quite obvious to you I'm not very religious? The other guy might say, well, I've been pretty religious most of my life. And the non-religious guy turned to him, your Jesus looks just as bloody as mine. See, at the cross, all that stuff just goes away. It doesn't matter. Who's got their act together? Who doesn't got their act together? Christ is still bloodied and beaten for us. At the cross, he wipes out all of that, and he says, just come to me. I'll get you to God. I will, if you will come in me, I will take you to the Father, and I will take you to the Father as one man because there is now, because of my sacrifice on the cross, there should be nothing between you because there's nothing left between you. In fact, the intention is that we would experience the friendliness of Christ, the elimination of all hostility, that there might be a removal between any of us, any kind of division. This is Christ's vision for heaven. In Revelation 7, 9, we read this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their, their hands, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, this is God's vision, is that all walls come down, and everyone who finds Christ comes into Christ as one man. We envision in our head, 
The best thing that could happen is if more people like me would come to Christ. And Jesus' vision is that more people would come to Christ, whether it be like you or not. And if there is something that might exist between me and another person in Christ, he's saying there is nothing between you and another person. Because at the cross, all of that has been abolished. Christ says, I extend to you my friendliness, my warmth. I want you to ask this question maybe of your own heart and mind as you think about the work of Christ on the cross. Here's, here's a question I might ask. In your own mind, you can think about something, maybe a burden, maybe a conviction, maybe a shame or guilt, and something might, it sort of clings to your heart and mind. And you say, man, if it weren't for that, I know I'd be closer to God. If it weren't for this one thing, whatever it is, I would be near to God if it weren't for this one thing. Maybe it's a sin, maybe it's a situation in your life, I don't know what it is. But you're saying, you know, if I could just get over this, I know I would be close to God. I'm sure you have. All of us have those things. Man, I'd be close to God if I could get over this one hang-up. If I could finally read my Bible more. Finally stop losing, blowing my top. What's funny is, is what happens at the cross is, is Jesus has destroyed it. And he says, come near. No, Jesus, you don't understand. I've got this one thing. Oh, he's, <laughs> oh I know all about it. And actually, I know about the two others you're not mentioning. It's gone. Don't worry about it. Come near. I want you to come near to me. I want you to experience my friendliness. I want you to experience my closeness. I want you to understand that in the, the ick and the mire that you see in your life, I just see you washed clean in my blood. And I want you, you to experience my closeness. Why is this important? Here's the reason. As long as I think Christ can hold something against me, I will hold something against you. That's just how it works. As long as I think Christ can hold something against me, I will think I can hold something against you. But as soon as I experience the warmth and closeness of Christ, in spite of the fact that he shouldn't be, I now have the ability to experience closeness with you in spite of the fact that there ought to be hostility between us. See, one of the ways that Satan seeks to destroy unity in the body of Christ is not just making us mad at one another. He makes us think Christ is a cheapskate. Because as, God, as long as God doesn't really accept me for who I am and what I have done, I will never accept you for who you are and what you have done. And the peace of Christ is the friendliness in Christ. And when we experience the friendliness and closeness of Christ, it allows the walls to come down between one another and we can experience friendliness and closeness with one another. The peace of Christ is the unity of Christ and the peace of Jesus is the friendliness of Jesus. How do we do this? We have to see one another and ourselves differently. Let's read the last two verses Ephesians 17 and 18. Ephesians 2, 17 and 18. And Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The gospel here, we understand, tells us that the peace of Jesus is also the perfection of Jesus. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news that Jesus 
allows us by Christ to have access together by one spirit to the presence of the Father. And this is good news for both the religious people among us and the irreligious people among us. For the religious people, this is good news. Why? Because you know your religion isn't working. If it was working, you'd stop. You ever, I mean, I don't know if you ever thought about it. If religion work, it is, works, why do you have to keep doing it? You have to keep doing it. Clearly, something's not working right. And the gospel says, good news, you'll never get, be good enough, and you don't have to worry about it. Christ is good enough for you. You're never going to be good enough, and you know you're not going to be good enough. Religious people are terribly good at knowing they're not good enough. That's why we work our tails off. Nothing better than a legalistic neighbor. Their lawn looks fantastic. And if, they, if it gets a little dicey, you can go over and make them feel guilty. It's wonderful. Oh, really? You're going to live with that lawn? Hmm. Maybe to atone for it, you can take care of mine. That's how you do that. The good news is also good news for the irrel- irreligious. That is, people who don't have religion, don't give a rip, frankly. And you also know you're not going to be good enough because you don't want to do that religion thing. And the gospel says good news. You don't have to do the religion thing. The cross saves us from our religion because it's dead and because it's useless. And the cross saves us from our irreligion. It draws us out of our shame and out of our deadness. And he says, in Christ, by one spirit, we have access to the Father because Jesus is just that awesome. He will just make anyone who trusts him clean. Let me read quickly Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you, when you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he was now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What were you doing? Evil deeds. What was he doing? Making you blameless. It's pretty awesome. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And he says this, here's the problem. We're living in our evilness. Jesus saves us. We say, hey, he made us clean. What's the first thing we do? We find a good religion. He says, listen, simmer down. You're saved by the gospel. You live by Christ by the gospel. Both those who are near to God, he's speaking specifically of the Jews, those who have the revelation of the law, Christ came and proclaimed the good news. The law won't save you, Jesus will. And he comes to the Gentiles and said, those of you who are far from the, God, from the law, Jesus dies for you and he will save you too. In Christ, by the Spirit, you receive righteousness. Individualism in the body of Christ is a foreign concept to the gospel. God's presence and his fellowship are all experienced together as the body of Christ. In fact, he intends for us to experience together the presence of God where beforehand there was hostility. That's the whole point. To demonstrate the power of the gospel is for people to gather together and worship with one voice and one heart the risen Savior where before there were lines drawn in the sand of hostility and where... Anger was the norm. Well, by way of closing, let me just ask this question. Is the peace of Christ in your life with Him and with others miraculous or expected? I could ask it this way. Are you able to get along with people 
in your life because of Christ that beforehand you would have never been able to get along with? Or have we just managed as Christians to hang out with people that we would normally get along with anyway? It's not surprising when a bunch of people who have a lot of things in common are able to get along. But what's amazing is when God does a work of the gospel in our midst, we see people who, who beforehand were hostile now have unity. Well, let me close this way. The peace of Jesus is Jesus. It is a theological impossibility to have the peace of Jesus without having Christ himself. The entire point of his peace, the very nature and essence of his peace, is not merely to gain peace, but it's actually to gain Christ himself. The peace of Jesus is the unity of Jesus, and it only comes by experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus. We can't have union with him if there is still hostility between us and Christ. Do you have union with Christ by faith? There is no hostility between you and Christ. And the only ways for the hostility to fall down between us and him and one another is to experience his forgiveness. Every day and every moment, we're going to have to rest in him that he has forgiven us. If you've been a Christian longer than five minutes, you realize that when you got saved, it didn't make all your sin go away. Our unity with him is defined by the extent of his forgiveness and the extent of his grace. And his forgiveness and grace leave a mark on his people. The mark of his forgiveness and grace on our hearts is our ability to freely extend to one another, what? Forgiveness and grace. That's the unity of Jesus together. The peace of Jesus is the friendliness of Jesus. Christ thinks of you in pleasant ways. Christ, when he looks at you, there is no chill in his gaze on you. His countenance toward you as one of his children is of warmth and gladness. As a child of God in Christ, you do not have the ability to change that countenance. You do not have the ability to change him from warm to cold. That is his view of you. This was the question I asked before. What clings to your mind that you're convinced uh, prevents God from drawing close to you? What prevents you from experiencing God's warmth and gladness in your mind? And we have to understand this by faith, that God does not see that thing the same way you do. He does not see that thing as a a way to prevent him from extending his warmth and his gladness to you. Have you ever asked this question of yourself? How could God possibly love me? This kind of question doesn't demonstrate our humility or our honesty. In fact, it betrays our lack of understanding of who God is. Because he has given us the entire scripture to convince us that if we understood who God is, we would ask this question. How could he not love me? Look at him. When we understand who God is, we would never ask a question, how could God love me? We would ask the question, how could not God not love me? That's all he does is love. His love and his friendliness leave a, a mark on his people, and that mark ought to be love and friendliness freely extended to one another. The warmest people in the world are those who are friends of God and express friendship and friendliness to one another. 
the peace of Jesus is perfection in Jesus. And like I mentioned, this is an equal opportunity offender. For religious people, you don't like the idea that your good deeds don't count. They don't. You don't get perfection because of your good, your good deeds. In fact, if your good deeds were to count, you won't get perfection at all. Because Jesus doesn't make up the difference between the good things you have done and what he needs. Jesus does it all. And your good deeds are of no use to him. Now, for those of us who aren't religious, you don't like the idea that you don't get to decide what's good. God decides what is good and right. You, you don't get the perfection he offers because you want him to consider what you think is right to be right. Now, if there's nothing wrong, guess what? You don't need a savior. You might be offended by the idea that the Bible says you need a savior. The Bible is filled with people who told God to take a hike. I don't need you. And for the most part, God honored that request. If that's you, I might just suggest this. A day will come, if it hasn't already come, where you're going to say, you know what? All my ideas of what I thought was good, it's starting to fall apart. The things I thought were good aren't as good as I thought they were. And things are starting to unravel. And I hope in that moment you might seek God in his grace and say, you know what? My ways aren't your ways. I want your ways, God. In Christ, by his spirit, we gain bold access to God himself through the peace of Jesus.